You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latinoamérica en Foco. América Latina en Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Hi, this is Karen Zissis of ASCOA Online. In Mexico, Presidents serve one long six-year term known as a sexenio, and they don't seek re-election. That's still true, but there's been a little adjustment. Since before he took office in 2018, Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, has been promising that his country's citizens would get to evaluate his leadership by voting in a recall referendum called the Revocación de Mandato on whether he should finish out his term. And that's about to happen. After a constitutional reform, some 11 million signatures gathered, and with Unlo's term just over half done, on April 10th, Mexican voters will get to decide whether he stays or goes. Should I stay or should I go? The thing is, there's not a big chance he'll get voted out. Even though his approval has dipped, it's still hovering around 60%. And as his supporters like to remind people, that makes him one of the more popular leaders in the world. Not only that, but the revocación vote also comes with a hefty price tag during an austerity government. As of early February, the INE had about $77 million on hand to run this. And the votes pitted the AMLO government against the INE, Mexico's electoral agency, in a series of ongoing battles over funding, political advertising, and how many voting sites will get set up. Then there's the opposition to the vote. Critics of both the president and the exercise of the recall itself are telling people to boycott the process using hashtags like Urnas vacías. That means a good portion of the people who would be most likely to vote AMLO out won't even show. An El Financiero poll found that 52% of Mexicans don't think the recall is necessary. So why is Mexico holding it? In this episode, we get into the answers and the architecture of the recall itself with journalist and political analyst Fernanda Caso. She's the host of Gato Pardo's podcast, known as Samanario Gato Pardo, and she also heads a project for understanding Mexican elections and political parties called Latitud 312. But first, there are a few elections happening in Latin America before this one. I'm here with my colleague, Chase Harrison, who's going to tell us about a pair of votes coming up in the Southern Cone. Hey, Chase. Hi, Karin. So on March 27th, there's going to be elections in both Paraguay and Uruguay. I'll start with Uruguay, where voters will choose whether or not they want to repeal part of this gigantic piece of legislation known as the Law of Urgent Consideration, which has 476 articles, but about 135 of those will be on the ballot for voters to decide if they want to overturn. And what's the main issue or topic concerning voters? A focal point of the campaigns on either side has been security. Uh, the reform strongly empowered the police. 
It empowered state security apparatuses. It also um, empowered the government to shut down protests a little bit easier. So that is what voters are going to be thinking about. And it's going to be a major test for current president, Luis Lacalle Poe, who really ran on issues of security in the election. And this reform was one of the, the biggest events of his presidency thus far. And are there any polls indicating what could happen in this vote? Polling from a couple months ago showed that there was a single-digit difference between each side, but in the past couple weeks, it has seemed more likely that it will not be repealed. Mm -hmm. And in Paraguay, what's going on there? In Paraguay, there'll be a pair of municipal elections in two newly created municipalities. One of these municipalities, Nueva Ascensión, is actually right next to the largest city and capital in Paraguay. And whoever wins those elections will have control over some key infrastructure projects for that region. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Jason. I also want to mention that on April 3rd, Costa Rica will be holding its presidential runoff between former president Jose Maria Figueres and economist Rodrigo Chavez. And in February's first round vote, the country had a relatively high abstention rate of 40%. The two candidates don't have much in the way of ideological differences to distinguish them, and roughly 15% of voters are undecided. You can find out more about Costa Rica's vote in our poll tracker and learn more about other elections in Latin America taking place this year in our election guide at as-coa.org slash 2022. Now, on to the main topic for this episode. Thank you very much for being with me today, Fernanda. Let's start off with the basics. What is this referendum? And what did it take to make it happen? Why is it happening? First of all, thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. In order to have this recall, Mexico had to go through a constitutional reform first, then have a lot of changes in legislation, And then to gather a lot of signatures from people who want this exercise to happen. So, well, in Mexico, constitutional reforms are not as uh, weird as they are in some other places. They do happen a lot. We have, like every period, we have constitutional reforms, but it's still a big thing. You have to go like through a specific majority in Congress and then go through local Congresses to approve them. So it was a big effort. And then having the legal reforms too. Why is doing this so complicated? Well, because uh, in Mexico, we have this historic trauma with dictatorship. Since Porfirio Diaz, who ran the government till um, 1910, we've had the fear of a president wanting to stay too long. So one of the revolution slogans was uh, sufragio efectivo no reelección, which means uh, that a, an effective vote means no re-election. So opening this small door where you ask people if you want the president to stay or to leave and changing this basic idea of a president staying only for six years and never having the chance to stay longer or less is a kind of a safety net for our democracy. So changing this and opening the door makes a lot of people fear that a president will eventually want to stay longer after a recall says that people like him. So if 
if there's a lot of people who want him to stay, then why wouldn't he or she stay longer in the future? In order to convene this citizen vote, which that's also known as consultas in, in Mexico, it requires getting a minimum of 2.7 million signatures. And it can't just be 2.7 million signatures from one place. It has to be 3% of voters in at least 17 of the country's 32 states, so more than half of the states, basically. Um, and overall, more than 10 million signatures were collected, or about 11 million signatures were collected. It took a lot of effort to make this happen. So why are people boycotting it? Well, the first strange fact about this recall is that the people who are organizing it are the people who like the president, are people from his team, are people who have worked with him in previous projects. But you would think that in a recall, it would be the opposition who would ask for it. In this case, it's it's not that way. It's the government asking people if they want the president to stay. So nobody is asking him to leave. Everybody wants him to stay in some way or the other. First, the ones who like him and who like the, the way he's doing things. And then the opposition who wants him to stay and do things differently, but stay till the end, like just be there for his six years. The other thing is that the outcome will never be good for the opposition. Because if, if eventually the recall happened, then... It would be the Congress who would choose the president for a while until new elections come. And the Congress has a Morena majority, the president's party. So at the end, the president who stays in, in the opposition's majority could be someone worse from the same political party. So even having the president gone wouldn't change much things for the opposition in terms of having a government they like. So there's this whole bunch of people who were collecting signatures for this recall to happen, but it was not the opposition. Now, it's hard to tell if these signatures are real because they were presented in paper like uh, formats with just a copy of the ID. There are other ways of doing these that have been tested in the past, but in this case, they chose this method and the, the elections court chose this method, which is impossible to validate. Like they can't know if people actually gave these their signature. And for me, it's hard to believe that 11 million people, it's one out of every 10 voters in Mexico. So it's hard to believe that one out of 10 voters in Mexico gave their signature to a process in which really nobody's interested. You go on the streets and people are not talking about it. Um, it's not a big discussion in the country. It's just the president and his friends who are like insisting in this in, in this exercise. You know, one argument I've read is that it sets a precedent for the future. So even if this recall doesn't really amount to anything, it sets the possibility in the future if there's a president with whom there's a problem. So in other words, some have made the argument that if you think about the last president, Enrique Peña Nieto, who as his term wore on, his approval rating really fell. His his um, you know presidency was tainted by corruption, and you know people use that as an example of saying, well, someone like that could have gotten voted out. What do you think of that? And what do you think about the potential for future recalls? Well, that's the argument the people who are organizing it are using the most. I don't think that it was necessary to actually have the exercise done to have 
this door open. Like just with the constitutional change and the, with the legislation made for this, the possibility existed. You know, like they didn't have to actually do it for it to be possible in the future. It is now possible in the future because it's in the law and, and there's a process described there. The details are have been discussed. So if in the future this was necessary, the opposition could do it. Like they, we didn't have to go through this now. It's going to be a very costly exercise in terms of money, but also in terms of the the time the president and the people around him are investing in it. Like we need a president focused on the main issues that the country is facing, you know, the the pandemic, uh, insecurity, um, I mean, education. There are a lot of issues everywhere. And what we have is not only a president, but, but also like some of the main um, political actors uh, investing a lot of time in making this happen. So it's hard to understand the the balance that the president is seeing here in deciding to spend his time there when um, the country has a lot of other priorities. One thing that's interesting to me is I remember early on in his presidency, and I think even before his presidency, when he started talking about this idea of the revocation and that uh, voters are going to be able to, um, to say if I should stay in office. And I remember at the time there being a fear that it was out of the Chavez playbook and 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 goes back to some of these ideas that you're saying, like this fear about that it's leading to re-election. Now, he has insisted that, no, he's going to step down. He even recently was said, you know, I've had it. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here in 2024. However, there is this aspect that is interesting, which is he seems very focused on his approval. One example. In recent days, we saw this angry letter he penned to the European Parliament after the Parliament passed a resolution urging Mexico to better protect journalists and human rights defenders. Now, much was made of the letter because it, it called the Parliament cheap and it told them to evolve and all of these things. But the thing that really stood out to me was that it cited a new poll that gave him 66% approval. And it said, basically, our president is more popular than your president's. To what degree is this recall a way for his popular support to go down in history books? I think you're totally right with that thesis. López Obrador is obsessed with being a character in history books. He talks about historic figures all the time, about these heroes from the past. He talks about Benito Juárez, about Madero, about like all these people from the past that he sees as an example. And he's tried to present himself as the next one. His uh, government narrative, calling himself the fourth transformation, that's the fourth T, like that's how he calls his project, fourth T. It's the next step in the story of transformations in the country. The first step being the independence, the second step being the revolution, the third step being the big reforms, and him being the fourth. That's how he sees himself. He wants to be there. He wants to be the head of something huge. And I think that as his government 
goes by, he's missing opportunities to become that. Like he hasn't been able to uh, make the numbers in poverty decrease significantly. He hasn't been able to end um, violence as he once uh, proposed. He had this whole idea of how giving new opportunities to young people would end with violence. And the opposite has happened. Like actually violence has kept going up. He hasn't done anything like really strong against corruption. Like some names have come up and they're doing some investigations, but nothing very different from what had been done in, in previous governments. So as the end of his period comes and gets closer, he's running out of options to make history. So I think he's seeing this recall as an opportunity of being the first president who went through a process like this, where people wanted to kick him out and he got all this popular support and was there. The thing is that he's not getting there because nobody wants to kick him out of office. So uh, even that narrative is becoming weird. He is going to be in history books because he has been president and that's that's enough to be there. But it's hard to tell what history is going to say about him. And right now, numbers and results are not uh, looking good. Uh, the pandemic has also been uh, an obstacle for him as for every other leader in the world. But yes, he's obsessed with his name in history and he's obsessed with his popularity because as any populist president in the world, he wants to keep this dialogue happening and him being the voice of the people. And he, for that, he needs the people to support him because in the moment people do not support him, then his whole narrative is lost. In many ways, you know, this recall vote feels like a win-win situation for AMLO. You know, the people who are going to show up are most likely going to be the people who support him. Normally, these consultas, in order to be binding, you need at least 40% of the the electorate participating. In a way, what seems to be much riskier thing about this recall is what it means for the INE, the Electoral Agency of Mexico. On the one hand, Mexico's electoral agency is this trusted institution. But on the other hand, many of AMLO's supporters say that INE allowed electoral fraud to happen in the past, particularly in the 2006 election, when AMLO lost his first go at the presidency by a hair to Felipe Calderón. Now for AMLO, it's the INE is part of, in a way, what he calls this mafia del poder. Y el INE con todo respeto, sin el ánimo de polemizar, está actuando de manera antidemocrática. Now, to some degree, as a result, it feels like a lot of this recall is about a battle with the INE. And it's hard for the INE to win the battle because it didn't get the funding it said it needed for the consulta. So only about one third or so of the number of voting booths that were set up in the 2018 election will go up this time. In other words, if turnout is low, AMLO can blame it on the INE. So what is at risk for the INE in this process? Okay. First of all, I agree with you that any outcome is positive for for President López Obrador in in the sense that most of the voters are going to be people who support him. Uh, But if the turnout is very low, the result for him is not going to be that good. I mean, any scenario is good for him, but a low, a very low turnout could be a bittersweet result for him. That's that's the word. Because it, it would mean that people are not actually following him the same way that they were in the beginning. You know, like people not coming out 
to to show their support in the way they they came out in the elections in 2018, it would be uh, a, an important sign for the 2024 elections. Secondly, because he's measuring his political allies. He's asking governors, he's asking mayors to do a big effort to bring people out to vote. So he's going to see who can answer to that call in an electoral way if he needs to if he needs them for the next elections. He, so there's also this internal battle happening inside his party. This recall is is working as that. People who want to be the next candidate from his party are doing big efforts to show him that they have the muscle to bring people out. So those results matter in that sense too. In the other way, in the battle with the INE, of course, I think the INE is the one who has the most to lose in this, this recall. But I wouldn't be that sure that if that a low turnout would become directly like a, a responsibility of the INE. It depends on what people say that day. If a lot of people in social media, in the news, start saying, I can't find my voting place, I can't, I can't find the polls, I can't... Um, uh, it's very far away from my home. I, I had to be in line for two or three hours, which is weird in Mexico for an election. Oh, elections are very yeah, efficient. Yeah. Um, if if that's the narrative that day, then that will be a problem for the INE because people will say, okay, the, the turnout is low because the INE didn't make a good job. But if everything works, if people find a voting site near to their house, which is what's going to probably happen, and then the turnout is, is low, then what the president can say about the INE is going to be very hard to stand by itself. And why, why do I think that it's not going to be a problem? Well, I, I'll have to explain a little bit of how our elections are organized. Um, a voting site in Mexico can't have more than 750 voters per voting site. That's a rule that's in our law. Hmm. So... So over the course of the day, they can only collect 750 ballots? And they have the list of the names that of the 750 people who can vote there in that voting site. So if in a section you have more than 750, you have to put a second voting site. Even if it's in the same place, in the same school, you have to have two voting sites. What's the reason for this? Well, that lines aren't too long, that counting the votes doesn't take too long. We have the results on time. We do it all uh, physically with paper ballots. We don't have uh, electronic voting. So when the INES says they're going to cut the number of voting sites, they don't necessarily mean that there are places that won't have a voting site. This means that probably they will have sites where uh, the list is going to be longer. The list of possible voters in that site is going to be over the 750. Probably they're going to have, if, if it's a crowded place, there will be a place where um, the list is 3,000. But if nobody comes to vote, then there, that will be a problem because there won't be lines and everybody will be able to vote. And it's the same place where they have always voted. That's probably the same school. Uh, but it's just that in, instead of having five voting sites in different classrooms, they're just going to have one. So having one third of the voting sites doesn't necessarily mean that voting sites are going to be far away from people's houses. They're probably going to choose strategically so that they still keep the dispersion 
of the voting sites that they need so that people can come. Interesting. Now, there's something interesting about the timing of this recall vote, right? Because um, the AMLO government and Morena, his the Morena co- coalition that supports him, they're also at this, around the same time having this process of reforms. So we have an electricity reform. There's the potential of, for example, reforms that could see uh, autonomous institutions, such as the INE itself, um, potentially absorbed into other institutions, right? So how do you see the timing of this recall relating to other things that are happening in the government? Well, first of all, the timing is not something he chose. His initial proposal was to have the recall on the same day as the midterm elections. The opposition like, really stopped that from happening because they, don't, they didn't want the midterm elections to become a, a recall election where all the country was involved and everybody was talking about it. They wanted the midterm elections to be real midterm elections. They didn't want his name on the ballot, yeah, right? That's that's, that's it. Ah, true. So um, they changed things so that the recall election would be the next year, which is 2022. In terms of timing, it does have um, a lot of relevance. As you said, uh, the electric um, reform is coming, but also the elections reform is uh, coming, he has proposed. And also there's a third reform that he wants to make, and that's the uh, National Guard reform which he wants to make it part of the military once and for all, you know, like officially make it part of the military. He has said that it's a civil institution, which it's not really, but now he's openly saying, okay, we're going to make it part of the military. We're going to stop pretending. Uh, But there's a lot of resistance to, to all of these three for different reasons, to the elections reform, to the electricity reform and to the um, security reform. Um, with this recall, what he's going to probably try to do is to gain allies for the 2024 election. And that way, in building that, it will be easier to build backwards. You know, like if he says, OK, this is the strength I have in all these places towards the next election, then you should be part of my team and you will have more possibilities of winning. If you are part of my team for the 2024 election, then you should support my project right now. And that project is all these reforms. I'm thinking specifically of one party in this sense. I mean, it, this is just speculation. We, we can't actually know what's going to happen. Um, but I think his bet is to have the PRI uh, become his ally either in a formal or in an informal way, you know, just like putting candidates that that won't win in certain places or not going in an alliance with a pan, with a national action party, or, you know, like helping Morena win the 2024. Okay, I'm going to stop you there for a second. Because for people who are listening, I mean, most people know that the PRI was the party in Mexico for seven decades. They ran everything. And it was the party that AMLO got his start, right? It's interesting, this this view that you're explaining, how he can draw allies and this party that where he got his start, this party that dominated politics. And that he has criticized a lot. Like a lot of his narrative is built around being against this party, but now it could be a possible ally for him in these reforms. 
So essentially, if he performs well in the recall, it's saying like, hey, look how well I'm doing. You want to be on my side, especially going into the 2024 election, when people are also thinking not just about the president, but about local elections, when they're thinking about the kind of control and handling of power on a national basis. That's really fascinating. Thank you very much for joining me today, Fernanda. It's been great having you on. It was my pleasure, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This podcast was produced by Luisa Lemmy with support from Sofia Mancia. We encourage you to check the podcast notes for links, including for a video of the music featured in this episode and recorded by Onyx Ensemble for America Society. To learn more about upcoming concerts, visit musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Give us five stars, write a review, share, and subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>